Whenever I visit France, I always see lots of top bottles for sale, but when I get back home, those same bottles can be much harder to find, if not impossible. That's why I use IdealWine.com. At IdealWine.com, I can buy wines directly from France for delivery directly to my home. They have new auctions every week, and the fixed price selection is equally awesome. Clos Rouchard, Chateau Reyes, and Ulysse Colon, as well as many more greats from all over France, are regularly available on the website. Best of all, it is simple and hassle-free to buy them. Ideal Wine handles all the customs and logistics hurdles for you and for me. Wines are ordered with a couple of clicks, and then they arrive. It is simple. Check out IdealWine.com for more information. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com to find what you'd like to be drinking. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. Chianti wine has been a part of the Italian wine story for at least 800 years, and early mentions refer to a white wine. In 1394, the idea of a Chianti as a zone was further buttressed by the League of Chianti. The League was originally set up as a defensive militia that would protect the Florentine state. But when fighting with Siena fizzled out, the League changed its focus to enhancing viticulture in the region. Later in 1716, toward the end of Cosimo Medici III's volatile and fairly dramatic reign as Grand Duke of Tuscany, he declared a Chianti wine region from Rada to Greve. So between the areas laid out by the League of Chianti and Cosimo Medici III, we find the roots of the Chianti Classico area. Historic records seem to indicate that in the 17 and 1800s, Caniolo was the main grape of Chianti, with smaller amounts of Sangiovese and other varieties being blended in. The subsequent shift towards Sangiovese, which is the hallmark of Chianti today, can be found in the ideas of Baron Bettino Ricasoli. Ricasoli was an interesting fellow who took on the burdens of his estate when he was orphaned at age 18. Not only did he raise his younger siblings, but he systematically and frugally turned his late parents' estate from disorganized and debtful into a profitable estate. Perhaps this huge responsibility at such a young age is what led him to approach his political career with similar prudence, dedication, and integrity. He also carried out wine experiments, and in 1872, Ricasoli penned his famous recipe for Chianti in a letter to a professor at the University of Pisa. He wrote, I verified the results of the early experiments. That is, the wine receives most of its aroma from the Sangiovetto, as well as a certain vigor and taste. The Caniolo gives it a sweetness which tempers the harshness of the former without taking away any of its aroma, though it has an aroma all of its own. The Malvasia, which could probably be omitted for wines for laying down, tends to dilute the wine made from the first two grapes but increases the taste and makes the wine lighter and more readily suitable for daily consumption. In the late 1800s and early 1900s, Caniolo and Sangiovese were still oscillating in popularity as the major grape in the blend. 
But over time, Fricasoli's ideas began to take on more popularity. Later in 1932, a man named Giovanni Dalmasso teamed up with some colleagues, and they produced a commission on the state of Italian wine. Dalmasso was a university professor who specialized in viticulture, also a grape breeder who introduced a few of his own crossings, and he wrote extensively on Italian wine. His writings on Chianti have greatly influenced what the Chianti region is today. The Dalmasso Commission pointed to a generalized area of Chianti that greatly expanded outward from the historic Chianti zone. Some suggest that the aim of the commission could have been to boost the local economy by transposing the Chianti name to a larger region to promote the nice table wines made in Tuscany. But the commission report could also have been Giovanni Dalmasso's observations on the state of the region at that time, drawing parallels between the historic Chianti zone and the surrounding areas. Ideas in this commission report were subsequently written into law. Since the Dalmasso Commission, the historic Chianti region drafted by Cosimo III has taken actions to reclaim the distinctiveness once reserved just for themselves. And today, the Chianti Classico zone plays by slightly different rules than Chianti at large. In 1967, DOC regulations took Ricasoli's ideas and wrote them into DOC law. The wines were to be mostly Sangiovese, with possibly some Caniolo, and 10 to 30% of Malvasia and or Trebbiano. In 1984, the historic Chianti Classical region became DOCG, and the rules here changed again with the aim of increasing quality. White grape minimums were lowered to 2%. Yields were also lowered. Fine age requirements were established, and extract levels were raised. The regulations also allowed for 10% of non-traditional grape varieties to be included, which greatly expanded the scope of what Chianti could be. In 1996, things changed again, Sangiovese could be 75 to 100% of the wine. And in 2006, white grapes have no longer been allowed in Chianti Classico. Ultimately, as you look over the last few centuries of Chianti, there have been many changes and shifts in what local winemakers think Chianti wine is and should be. And if we had the time travel option to taste a contemporary version of a Chianti sampling from the last few centuries at, say, 25-year increments, I imagine we'd be greatly surprised at how Chianti has changed over the years. The wine region is kind of like a wine geek's paradox. That age-old land that sits between Florence and Siena has so many stoic vestiges from the past, from abbeys to ornate churches to ancient theaters, and even wine estates that date back close to a thousand years. You can hang out in a medieval tower or walk the streets of Florence or Siena and literally feel as if you have stepped back several centuries in time. There is a feeling of powerful and ancient tradition. And yet, when you actually look at the last few centuries of history, this area has continually reinvented itself. In the wake of changing global pressures, the region has renegotiated its politics, its modernity, and the basic idea of what Chianti wine is. And if you get into the IGTs, the seemingly traditional Chianti wine region is actually full of inspired individuals who push the boundaries of regional wine beyond DOC limits without fear of bucking tradition. It's neat to taste all the different micro-expressions of what Chianti is today, but it's also curious to ponder, what will it be in 10, 20, 30 years? Next up, a Chianti producer with centuries of history that has experienced all these changes from front row theater seats.
it's not enough to make great wine. You also have to reach the consumer that appreciates that wine. And that's where Offset is an incredible asset. Offset is an independent brand design and commerce technology company that connects with wineries on a human level to help them connect with consumers on a human level. Offset is based in wine country and staffed by creative strategists and technologists who are superb at helping create and evolve wine brands through visual identity and package design, developing the look, feel, and tone of your web content, as well as building beautiful and effective websites powered by their proprietary e-commerce platform, Offset Commerce. That's why leaders like Frog Sleep, Grace Family Vineyards, and Rain Winery already rely on Offset. Reach out to the brilliant team at Offset at offsetpartners.com. That's O-F-F-S-E-T partners with an S dot com. Offset is focused on the wine industry and can embrace the nuanced needs of your wine brand. Andrea Bianchi Bandinelli of Villa de Gegiano on the show today. Hello, sir. How are you? Hello. Very well. Thank you. Very nice to have you here. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. So your family has been in, in Tuscany for quite a long time, somewhat uh, near Siena. Yes, exactly. We trace back the origin of the family to the year 900. And in the place where we now have the winery and the estate, uh, we're there since 1527. Has that always been a wine-producing uh, uh, endeavor? The, now it is a villa with a wine production facility, but the, uh, the origin was a farmhouse built in the 13th century. So it's always been in the middle of the fields with a, an agricultural operation going on. So wine was a part of it? Uh, wine was a part of it because also in the old days, it was not exactly organized as it is today because it was more uh, kind of a mixed agriculture. So probably in the same fields they were growing wheat and olive oil, uh, olive trees and grapes. So it was not specialized as it is today. So of course it was uh, generic agriculture with big part of wine. 500 years later, what changed in between? <laughs> A lot of things changed. <laughs> I sometimes thought that I was born in the wrong time <laughs> because uh, at the time uh, there were uh, more hectares of lands and uh, the, the situation was different and so different that recently in the last, let's say, 50 years, the house became the, the summer home of the family, the holiday home. And so, uh, after my grandfather founded cooperative winery, um, your grandfather started a cooperative winery yeah, for the exactly, region. Exactly in 1959, because after Second World War, Chianti was kind of a depressed area. It was not that fancy place that is it today, where all the people want to go, and. <clears throat> So um, the, the farmers were really poor and it was still based on the sharecropping activities. And so there were 20 families of farmers were uh, living in our farmhouses, working on our land, keeping for themselves just half of the crop. And, and the other half they paid to you in rent. And the other, exactly. But they didn't own anything and they could be fired and it could be just dismissed from one day to another. And so we thought that that was not fair. 
And um, he thought also that the only way to change the situation would have been in, in that year to join the Communist Party after the Second World War. So, Your grandfather joined the Communist yeah, Party. Yeah, exactly. And he was a noble, he was an archaeologist and an historian of art, professor at the university. And so um, he also had this, he was pretty sensitive about the, the situation with these farmers. And so he decided to make uh, a donation to these 20 families to constitute a, a social winery. And so he donated 20 farmhouses and 200 hectares of land. And they, they made up this cooperative that is still working nowadays. So for a certain number of years, we managed the vineyards with workers and we were collecting the grapes to the cooperative and losing a lot of money, not making quality wines, but just to keep the things going on. And then more recently, say around 1985, we realized that something has to be done to keep the place because the house is a national heritage with gardens and interiors and a lot of maintenance. So it was not something you could manage as a, with a salary of a normal employee as we were, my father <laughs> and me. And so we start thinking about doing something. My parents wanted to sell the place because it was a lot of money, of expenses, a lot of troubles. And just to go there a couple of weeks in the summer, it was a bit too much. So um, with my brother, we decided that it would have been a disaster to sell this place with all the history of the family and, uh, and, and all what was implying the, this place. And so we start thinking about doing something to try to keep it. So we start making a, a small amount of bottles from the vineyards. We got out of the cooperative cellar and we start getting into... The, the family business after hundreds of years, because also there is a record in, the, in our archive of the sales of the wine in England in 1725. So it's always been something very important there. And that area of uh, north of Siena, five miles north of Siena, has been always known by the locals as a very good production area. So the people were usually in Italy, going to buy the, the bulk wine and bottle by themselves. They were always going there because it's it's been known for many years to be a very good place for, for that. So we start doing that. So your grandfather, a man of letters, had a lot of sympathy for the people, and he gave away 200 hectares of the family winery. Exactly. And he kept for us the villa and about 25 hectares between vineyards and olive grown. And he started up a cooperative model, which probably made a lot of sense post-war. Yeah, exactly, exactly. It made so much sense that it's still working nowadays. Now they're producing bulk wine of a pretty good quality, and they they give the the wine to a second-level cooperative that is doing the bottling and the commercialization. But it's still there, and the people are still very close to the family and to what was happened. Because historically what was happening was there were families living on a property, they were growing grapes, and then they were being made at one facility. But then with the end of feudalism and the rise of industrial economy, there needed to be a centralized place to make this wine. Exactly, exactly. And also the model of the generic agriculture that I was telling you before. So within the same field, they were growing wheat and olive trees and grapes that was just 
to make the family alive, to, to keep the family alive. It was not producing any money. And so also the society was changing and you were not just relying on your production, but you were needing money to do things, to buy cars, to buy TVs, to the modern life. And so they didn't have money. And in this way, they could change a bit their, their way of living and they started doing a more specialized agriculture. So focusing on one crop that they could sell for more money so that they could get some money as exactly. opposed to sustaining themselves on what they made themselves. Exactly. And also making the vineyards in a different way. So specialized vineyards and uh, olive grown in another side, the wheat and on another side, uh, really doing something a bit more effective. So do you ever feel intense frustration with your grandfather for giving away 200 <laughs> hectares? Are you Absolutely ever like, no. fanculo? <laughs> no. Uh, as a joke, we, we say with my brother sometimes that if our grandfather would have been a fascist, now would have been really much less trouble. But uh, no, no, he was a great man and we really admire him. What's the legacy of that? He gave it away to 20 families. Are those still family-owned properties those 25 yeah 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 they're still around there uh, except some one of them that had uh, the fortune to be in a, a state developing area and so they made a lot of money because they sell the land to build houses and, and so they they finished to be farmers but the other people are still there and we still have good relationship with them and it's still a, a very small place there's not big villages around so there's still kind of rural way of living where the people knows each other and they're in touch daily so it's it's a nice atmosphere so the 80s come around and you realize that financially you need to make more money to sustain this exactly it was not a possible to keep the house and the estate like a summer home and so I was working in software business in Rome and um, and my brother was a graphic designer and so we decided that in some way the house would have been uh, a way to produce money to be self-sustaining. And so um, we start doing these small amounts of bottles of wine and start wondering how to, to make this happening. And, uh, and then actually the, the, the occasion, it took a while because I was still working and so I couldn't just drop my work and go there because I had children, I couldn't just make it this way and so um, the first serious vintage we bottled was 1989 that we follow com completely and we were able to move there and start this new activity just in 1995 so for a certain number of years we are kind of commuting from Rome up and down to try to to keep everything together and try to figure out how to <laughs> deal with this problem and uh, and uh, the the way we were able to to do it it was really by a chance because I read on a newspaper in Rome that the film director Bernardo Bertolucci was supposed to shoot a movie a film in, in Tuscany in Siena and so as I knew his uh, scene designer very well he was a friend of mine I just give him a ring and tell him look if you're going to do this have a look to my place because that could be an option and Bertolucci knew my grandfather because he was a famous intellectual so he was immediately in interested in it and he came to have a survey of the place and he decided to put it into the movie that was Stealing Beauty with Liv Tyler and Jeremy Irons you know what they say about that movie 
there's two really beautiful things in Stealing Beauty, the girl and the house. Yeah, <laughs> I know, I know. <laughs> and uh, and the guy was really pretty, yes, actually. Yeah. She was 17, so very young, but she has some, some kind of glowing around her. I saw her in the street once in New York. She passed me on the uh -huh, way out of a restaurant. Uh -huh, uh -huh, uh -huh. I think it still means a lot to her. Yeah. <laughs> she talks about it a lot the time she saw me. Yeah, yeah of course. Uh, and so, anyway, this was a, a good chance because they came for shooting and they pay us good money. And we also hosted part of the crew as a, like an hotel, so they gave us other money. And also they rented some of the furniture of the villa to set up the other location where they were shooting. So at the end of the, the game, uh, they stayed from May until the end of September. And that was an amount of money that was enough to start doing something there. I quit my job, my brother too, we moved to Giorgiano and uh, we start uh, increasing the wine production and we start using the house also for other activities. We start renting the, the grounds for weddings, start giving wine tours, guided tours of the villa that is a national heritage. And so slowly we set up a kind of microeconomy based on different legs and wine was one of these and and with the years it became more and more important and and we became more and more passionate into this kind of living and activity so really the movie helped bankroll the next phase of the evolution absolutely for absolutely that was a turning point yeah so you actually moved to the siena area in 95 in 95 permanently yeah and what's it like to live there versus Rome? I mean, what's Siena like? Uh, but let's say at the beginning, I was a little bit shocked, <laughs> even by the silence of a countryside coming from a big town. The first nights, I still remember very clearly, I was feeling the noise of the silence. I couldn't sleep well because it was so so noisy. Uh, and But slowly, of course, I start appreciating that. And now I would come back with a lot of difficulties to live in a big town. And at the beginning, of course, I still had some tight with Rome, friends, and I, so I was going back and forth a bit every couple of weekends I was in Rome. But slowly, I started really appreciate living there. And all the friends were in Rome, that is just two hours driving, so they start moving <laughs> toward us. <laughs> and viticulturally, how is the area of Chianti near Siena different than other areas of it? But let's say that Compared to the Chianti Classico area, we could consider that part of the Chianti like the southern part. It's the southern border, and so it's a little bit warmer. The hills are a little bit lower and smoother, and the soil is already changing toward what is happening between Siena and Montalcino, so clay, sand, limestone, less rocky, less steep hills. And so in general, that area is considered to deliver more elegant and generous wines. And, uh, and also the, the, there has been a lot of changes also in the, in the grape growing, because when we went there, the, the average number of plants per hectare were about 3,500. And uh, the, the heights of the plants were higher. And so slowly we start replanting them, adding more plants per hectare to have more concentrated grapes. And, um, and we start also doing some kind of uh, specific organic growing because it's always been uh, run organically, just copper and sulfides, the Bordeaux mixture. 
and manure, natural manure. But it was not specialized. So we, we, we had an agronomist, there was a consultant, and we started doing all these techniques that now are pretty, I think, generalized. But for us, it was some kind of uh, new adventure. And so we start growing barley and clover in the vineyards to control the humidity and uh, letting the, the plants growing lower so they can be more enriched. And so it was a, a really a discover in this sense. The trellising is not as high as it used to be. It's been yeah, brought down exactly. lower to the now ground. Now they are around 60 to 80 centimeters from the soil. And what is the vine training like? Is it, uh, it was typically the spur cordon. And it was doing well because it was keeping the, the yield per hectare quite low. So we had enough concentration. But recently, also with the climate change, we found that it was even too much. We need to produce a little bit less concentrated grapes. So we start doing some experiment, like kind of uh, in a part of the vineyard, we, we made something we call the Frankenstein pruning, oh. because we had to, to a spur cordon, a little guillot tail to try to obtain a bit more grapes. And in the mean, meantime, we had to make the foliage leaves being bigger and a bit taller because, of course, everything must be in balance. You cannot just add more grapes. The plant has to have the way to sustain more grapes. And so slowly we, we are changing and we try to tame a little bit the, the great substance that there is in the grape because... Also, as a personal taste, we don't like the very chunky wines, very heavy. But even if they are elegant, the wine we're producing, sometimes we found that, they, especially in the last year, they tend to the 15 degrees alcohol. And we want to try to make something a bit easier. So climate change is happening. You're already a little bit further south in the zone. Yeah. And, and it's getting and, warm. Yeah, and also that's something that we really noticed because uh, my grandfather was taking a note of all the vintage, uh, the harvesting times, and they were never happening before the 5th of October, beginning of October, that period. And since we are there, we, we in some of the hottest years, like 2003, 1997, very, we, we had to start the, the, the grape picking mid-September. So it was really tangible. It was not just an idea, no? And so we had to, to think how to deal also with this problem. What about clones? I mean, I know there was a, a rise of clone use in Tuscany in the 70s and 80s. What, what was planted in the zones? That yes, uh, on the clones, they've done a, a big, big job, experimental job that was called Chianti 2000, in which they made a selection of clones. And so as a result, now the nursery has different clones of Sangiovese that are I would say more or less the same in terms of taste, probably, uh, size of the grapes or something, but they are more adapted to the different parts of the vineyards. So there is a part that is going well with less lights, a bit more humidity, and we use in the bottom of the vineyards, and there is a part that is better adapted in the driest part. And so we decided the, the clone selection following the, the different position in which they have to be planted in the vineyard. So you actually have a number of clones, but they're... We, they, we have uh, the six different clones. 
And I confess you that I can't remember the names because they are just acronyms, some like uh, L5 or G3. Or very something. exciting names. Yeah, very yeah. exciting <laughs> names, exactly. But uh, with the good help of the agronomists, we were able to, to, to find the, the, the right ones. And this is another uh, part of the really ripeness that we have now in the vineyards because uh, the clones, the larger number of plants per hectare, the climate changes, the the organic uh, growing of the plants that they are making the plants stronger. And that's something that we really saw because it's like a human body. If you give them antibiotics, it will never develop its cells resistance. In this way, the plants are, I, I don't want to say left alone, but they have to to get stronger, no? And they're becoming. So all these many factors put together, now we have a very, very generous <laughs> grapes uh, at, at, at the production. So we have really, I, I would not say big wines, but very intense, very intense. And you also grow other grapes, both native and non-native. So you have Chilajolo. Yes. You have a little bit of Cabernet, a little bit of Syrah. Exactly. How are those different than Sangiovese in the soil that you have? It's basically different maturation time. Uh, while the Ciliagiolo is it's ripening together with the Sangiovese, uh, the first one we have to collect is the Syrah. That it's also a Syrah that is not so intense, is not so deep in color, and in taste is not so herbaceous as it's usually the Syrah. So it's good for our blending because it doesn't get doesn't prevail on the other taste and, and the cabernet that is that i like very much and and maybe someday we will do a uh, pure cabernet just for fun <laughs> and um, in my opinion it's probably one of the best grapes you can mix with uh, sangiovese why do you think that? Because uh, it doesn't spoil the typicity of Sangiovese, the acidity, the freshness, even the tannins. So I think it goes very well together. And then in our Chianti Classico, we use it in a very, very low percentage. Like 5%? Yes, 5% in the Chianti Classico. And um, because we vinify all the varietal and the part of the vineyard separately, and then we make a blending. So at the time of the blending, if you find a very interesting uh, barrel of Cabernet, it's a shame not to use it because it can just add some good qualities to the, to the Sangiovese. And I'm not an integralist of typicity or uh, indigenous clones or, or vines or whatever because I think that what makes the wine Tuscan is mostly the soil and the way you make the wine. So uh, I would say even a 50% Cabernet, 50% Sangiovese grown in a certain way, in a certain soil, and vinified in a certain way, it's absolutely Tuscan. If you do 100% Sangiovese and you use barriques, old new oak or something, it's less Tuscan than the other one. So I'm, I'm not so strict in my point of view. And what kind of soil is that? Is that galestro? Uh, no, we don't have much galestro. It's basically um, limestone, clay, sand, and we have some kind of uh, small rocks, but pretty scattered. It's not very rocky, the soil. So it's really pushing. And we have this, what is called the Terra Rossa di Siena, the red soil of Siena. And so... 
I think that we are in a, in a kind of a turning area between the classical, typical with galestro and rocks and, and, and a soil a little bit more tough, going toward the southwest of Siena, toward Montalcino, where it's much richer and there is more clay, more limestone sand, and, and limo, I don't know how to translate, but it's basically the sand left by the rivers, very, very fertile. And so, like an alluvial. Yeah, sand. exactly, exactly. We have also a lot of shells in the in the vineyards, residual of the Mesozoic or something like this, and and it's really a very very rich soil, and it, and it keeps the humidity very well. In fact, even in the in the warmer and driest vintages, we are able to obtain a very good product. The the vines are never shock by the lack of water of too much heat so that helps i mean a, a blend of clay and sand probably has an, an interesting ability to deal with water because yeah. they're so different but exactly. they're together yeah exactly and also with the techniques that we use with the planting of clover and barley we can control because if it's very rainy like last year we let them growing and the the, the roots of these these weeds are sucking the roots, the extra humidity from the roots of the vines. If it's very hot and warm, we cut them and we leave it on the soil so we avoid the evaporation and, and we can control this way. And, and of course, when they decompose, they nourish the soil. So they've been chosen to just add the, the right chemical uh, elements to the soil. Do you find that parcels have more or less limestone, or is it uniform? Uh, but it's almost uniform because it's also it's a small uh, vineyard. That it's uh, now in production. There are eight hectares, so and they are all around the the villa. So there there are no big difference. I would say the main difference I would find maybe from the top of the hill and the bottom of the hill, in, but in terms of quantity of sun and shades and humidity, a little bit of humidity. But in terms of soil, I, I would say they are pretty homogeneous. Because when your grandfather kept the 20 hectare, he kept the house and the 20 hectare around the house. Around the house as a sort of protection to avoid that someone could get the, the soil and build modern buildings or something. Because the house, it's a national heritage, has been completely redone in the 18th century and still it's preserving its way. So it's really uh, something that it told us to keep that way. <laughs> so the Chianti Classico, when you make that wine, how do you make it? What do you do when no grapes come to the wine? But let's say that, as I told you, we, we harvest the, the grapes uh, in the different part of the vineyard. Usually the oldest part have more uh, strength and resilience, more resilience. So we start from the grape that are a little bit less strong, maybe with a thicker skin, uh, and we start harvesting them because the other one could stay even with a bit of water, rain, something like this. And uh, we select the different varietals, starting from the um, Syrah, and we start doing the, the fermentation. Now, in the last years, we start also a little bit in advance because we make a little bit of a rosé too, 100% Sangiovese, done on purpose. So we're harvesting the grapes, the Sangiovese for the rosé, that it's 100% Sangiovese, a couple of weeks before so they remain a little bit greener with a higher acidity that goes well for this kind of unification. Then we unify all the parts. In the good years, 
we don't need to make two or three passages. It's easier. When it's a little bit more tricky, we have to do different passages to collect the grapes in the different phases. Uh, and then we ferment in different stainless steel tank vats and uh, we keep them uh, until February to decant all the, the particles because we're not filtering the wine. So when we put them in the barrels, we want them to be really clean. So you let it settle. Yeah, you let the leaves let, settle. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And in terms of fermentation, we're doing, uh, I would say, an average of a couple of weeks of fermentation in which we're doing one or two pumping over the must and crushing the hat of the of, in the in the vat by hand. We proudly call ourselves a low tech winery, <laughs> by this point of view. <laughs> and when you age it in wood, what kind of wood is that? Uh, the wood is um, French oak, but we just have ten percent new oak per vintage, and we use as an as a in the largest part, I would say ninety percent, five hundred liters, so tonneau. And uh, for the aging of the Reserva, we use also a larger cask of 2,000 liters, always French oak, mostly Allier Never, and we do it the extra aging for the Reserva. That also, the Reserva is a different vinification because we're doing uh, three days of cold macerations of the grapes that we obtain adding dry ice chips to the distilling machine. Oh, okay. Very, so you put dry ice on so it doesn't start yes, to ferment. Yeah, exactly. In the distilling machine, very carefully, very slowly, because otherwise you're going to burn the skins of the grape. And we keep the most at 5 degrees Celsius for three days. And we found this, this technique much more interesting than the refrigerated vats because when the dry ice melts down, it releases carbon dioxide that is heavier than the oxygen. So it stays on top of the mass and um, the release of the color and the perfume that could lead to an increase of the volatile acidity if less behind. In this way, it's completely absent practically. So we have the end of this phase when we start the fermentation, a very, very reduced uh, volatile acidity. And so that uh, it's, it's very young, it's not been spoiled by the oxygen. And as a second result, we are able to put very low sulfide in the bottling phase. So using more CO2 to use less SO2. Yeah, exactly. And what about the length of the mallow? Does that change vis-a-vis -vis the normale and the reserva? Uh, no, usually it's, it's almost the same. Uh, we're not always able to have it in the stainless steel tenvax. So sometimes we it happens in the next spring in the barrels. So sometimes it takes a while. And yeah, then you sometimes do it, it takes wood. a while, especially if after the harvesting uh, it start getting colder. As I told you, we, we don't have a um, I say uh, air conditioned cellar, and so if after the the harvesting we have a cold climate, even if you put a little bit of stoves inside to try to keep the temperature, it doesn't start. And so we patiently put the wine into the barrel and wait the springtime. So you don't force the mallow, you no, let it happen no, on its no, own. No, 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 we want to happen by yourself. The only issue with this system is that then we have to clean a little bit more the barrels used because it leaves the, the sediments inside. But uh, last year, an example, it, it, it's been done immediately after the fermentation. So it depends by the different vintages. And what about the press wine? Do you use press wine? Uh, we have a very old press, uh, hydraulic, with 
two big uh, baskets in wood, and so we give a very very light pressure to the to the skin. So we, we don't even need to keep it separately because it's so mellow and tender. It doesn't have any kind of uh, sourish ending or something because we don't crush the seeds, and so it can be used. Of course, we have a little bit of a loss, but that's really still the good part of that. And what about the different vintages that you've encountered? You started back up in the late 80s, you moved there in 95. Um, uh, I would say that we've probably been pretty lucky because as I told you, we are very well going on with the heat and the drought. So that's not a big issue. Uh, the issue is when it's raining and uh, we've had really a few bad vintages. I would say 2002 was probably a bit rainish. And um, I can't remember, maybe 1995 was probably strange enough because it was considered to be a good vintage. Pretty tricky for us because we have had a late frost. And so part of the flowers that were on the vines that died. And so at the time of the harvesting, we, we had a... Uh, a big difference in maturation of the grapes, but it was not perceivable. It was not some berries were green and some other were uh, red. It was not very well perceivable, uh, but the wines were not as we were expecting. So in that year, we didn't make the Chianti and the Riserva. We just did the, the um, IGT. But Apart that, I don't remember. I can't remember very difficult vintages. Also, because being a small amount of, of vines, we we are able to really take care of them very carefully. Even last year, two thousand fourteen, that was a very difficult vintage because it was rainy all the time. It was cold, uh, and we had to do more spraying, of course. But at the end, we, we were brave enough to wait, uh, not to start harvesting the grape as many people did because it was start raining. And we've been rewarded with two weeks of sun in October that makes the vintage at the end pretty good, pretty good, more than expected. And, and that's also why I'm not a big fan of vintage charts because they are too generic. No? They tend to include Bordeaux and Chianti, and, and there is a difference in my estate to one that is five kilometers away. So that has an implication by the commercial point of view, because, of course, if you make a good wine in a, in a vintage that is not considered good, that is not so valuable. But at the end of the game, we're not big commercial involved because we're producing something 40 to 50,000 bottles per vintage. So... We don't care that much. But also the vintage chart doesn't reward you for doing the extra hard work and the poor vintage because when people see that vintage, they're going to think, oh, it's not good, even if you spend a lot of time exactly. trying to even make it good. Exactly, if the wine is good. But uh, as it's a, such a small amount of wine, we are pretty able to communicate and to let the people know that it's a good vintage. And we are not looking for awards or something like this. <laughs> we are happy to do to make good wine. When you approach it, is it very different to make rosé and what works for rosé from Sangiovese than Chianti Classico? Uh, yes, it's it's different because fermenting just the most, it's different than having the, the, the skins inside. But um, that's something we've done mainly for ourselves as an experiment and also to have something fresh to drink in the summer. 
then it come out that it's pretty good and we, we sell a lot of that in uh, in the restaurant in London and also around the, the friends in, in Italy. We practically don't export that. Maybe Kermit Lynch had some of these last year, but it's not every year. Also because it needs the wine to be bottled within March to come on the market in right time and it's an amount of probably 1,000 bottles. We don't bother much about this. It's more for having fun. <laughs> and when you blend the red wines, yes, what are you thinking about? What works for you? What what characteristics are you trying to put together into the uh, blend? Let's your- say what I really love in wine are mostly the perfume. <laughs> That's my... So it's like women then. <laughs> I'm sorry. It's the same thing. It's a nice thing, the wine and yeah. the women in the house. These are the nice things. Exactly. Okay. And uh, in fact, also when I'm drinking wine, I spend a lot of time smelling it rather than drinking a lot because I really love Keeps the, you sober. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> and, um, and so uh, we really focus on the elegance, the perfumes, this, this characteristic. And of course... Um, if it smells good, it is good. So doesn't have to be so controlled. Of course, we taste all the wines together. But what I would say, we, we try to really obtain our wines very elegant with the nice perfume, right balancing, something like this. Not too big, we try. And that's what we try to achieve. So when did you meet Kermit Lynch? Ah, Kermit Lynch was, uh, we were actually the second winery, Italian winery, working for him when he decided. How did that happen? It happened in a very strange way, uh, as most of the things are happening in life, because uh, there was a friend of Kermit Lynch that was uh, in, in Berkeley with him in the 70s. There were two hippies together in Berkeley. And this guy at a certain time moved to Tuscany, and he's now dealing with, Tourist is a kind of a guide, special guide of a certain level for special places and special uh, secrets, uh, hidden secrets of Tuscany. And Kermit asked him if he knew someone that could work for him. And he knew us, he liked the house, he liked the wine we were making, even if it was such a small quantity. And so he put us in touch. And I will always remember the first meeting with Kermit Lynch because before coming to meet him, I read something about him. And so I was pretty excited because he was a a sort of guru of the wine. And we had a meeting in Rome because he couldn't come to the estate. And so I went with my little bottles and he was staying in a beautiful hotel in top of uh, Spanish steps. And uh, I went into his hotel room and uh, and he was absolutely mad and furious because he he, he booked a, a penthouse and the room was on the second floor and i came exactly when he was screaming with the director of the hotel so i was terrified because he was in such a bad mood i say okay i'm coming back another time but then we start talking and we i spent all the afternoon with him and uh, he loved the wine because in his opinion were very simple and but we're reflecting exactly the characteristic of the Sangiovese that he was expecting to find and the territory and they were not too fancy wines simple because we're not so expert and so refined and so he find the the kind of wine he liked 
And, and since then, we worked a lot together. And he also had an impact on our winemaking because before uh, we met him, uh, we were already exporting the wine in the States with small importers in different states in very low volume. But we were filtering the wines because the idea also with the analogy was that the wine had to be clean and not to be susceptible of any possible issue or something. And after four hours of conversation with him, he convinced me absolutely that it was the worst error possible. He said, Especially, I don't want it filtered and I want the penthouse. Exactly. Two things I care about. Yeah. <laughs> this afternoon was focused on this. <laughs> and, and we actually did it and we found it very interesting because all the wines we're producing due to the characteristic of the soil and the high acidity in the alcohol they have, they can age very, very well. Uh, and so not filtering them, we add extra flavor to, and, and taste to the wines. And so it was a very good things we, we achieved. You know, it's interesting because sometimes when I think about Tuscany, I think about quite famous analogists who work at several different properties. Yes. How did you arrange it when you started winemaking? I know your brother does the vineyard and the yes. winery work. And but, uh, before moving there, we, we studied a little bit, even if it was something we always seen since we were kids in the countryside. We were spending all the summer there, so we were in the cellar where they were doing wine, but there was a, just a, a view, not putting the hands into it. But we started uh, wine tasting and wine making for three years before going there as a personal uh, enrichment. And then we had some consultants. The first one was a pretty famous enologist. It's called Maurizio Castelli. And uh, kind of a friendship way, he started helping us, giving us hints and something. Then uh, we had uh, one of his pupils uh, that's worked with him and uh, is a guy from Naples, uh, Fabrizio Thomas, that he does also other organic wines in other regions of Italy. And we worked for, with him for, for many years. And just recently, two years ago, we decided to change because we felt that we were probably a little bit kind of asleep on the same routine of winemaking, consultancy, tasting or something. So we tried to really give a twist to try also to pass for, uh, from the phase of making a good wine to try to make this little step that is the hardest to be excellent. And so we're now working with uh, Paolo Vagaggini that is a very nice person and is a very good expert of Sangiovese, probably one of the most expert of Sangiovese. He does consultancies for half of the wineries in Montalcino. He is in, makes a lot of collaboration with the University of Wine in Bordeaux. So it's a very knowledgeable person, but also it's a very, it's not a star. We didn't want a star that was just coming there making the same wine with us that he was making all the other cell. I don't want to make any names because it's not nice, but there is kind of this tendency, you know, they sign the wine and they make the same wine in all the, the, the wineries. We want to keep our characteristic. We want to work the way we like to do. And so he came into the, the picture in a very nice and gentle way, giving us suggestions and helps. And I think that we can start seeing the results. The vintage 2011 of the Classico that uh, we're just selling now has been blended with him. 
And so I think thanks to his palate and his judgment, we, we've done a very, very good wine and, and we notice a little bit of an improvement. Always in the, in the way we're looking for of the elegance of the wine. And how does it play out, the improvement? What does it taste like? The, the fruit is much richer. And to use a, a word that is probably not so common in wine, it's, to me it's happier, <laughs> a bit happier. It's, uh, it's, it's fresh and, and this, this fruit of typical of the, of the classic of the Sangiovese, these cherries, the, the violet, these fruits are, are really very perceivable and, and the wine is really expressive and, and really happy to be drunk. Compared, for example, to 2010, that is considered to be a be be better vintage, it was a little bit more, I, I don't know how to say, more uh, serious, a little bit more tight and more dark. Now this one is more expressive, and I can see when I'm doing tasting, the people uh, are really, even people that doesn't know about wine, so they don't do a judgment very analytical, but just as an impression of drinking, they, they like it very much so. And I like it too, so... So that's what matters. Yeah, that's, it seems that's <laughs> it turns working, out if yeah. you like it and the customers yeah, like it, that that's a good that things that's are a good happy. Then. In, yeah. To be, yeah, happy in multiple senses. Yeah, right? exactly. <laughs> One thing that's happened recently in the Tuscan area that's you started to see with certain bottlings coming out is the Grand Selezione, but you don't do that. No, the the Grand Selezione is what is happening. The Chianti Classico. It's a bit controversial. This is a decision that has been taken by the Consortio of Chianti Classico that in some way felt that the, the Chianti Classico was losing its appeal on the market and, and so they wanted to revive a little bit the, the image and so they start doing things that I, I, I have to say I'm not approving because one of the first things they've done it was the change of, of the logo, the Black Rooster. So they paid a lot of money to a graphic design studio in Milano to redesign the logo that changed slightly and, and it was not what we need. And then this, this new appellation, the Gran Selezione, that has been object of a big debate and especially the small producers were not so happy about that because probably we are the ones that are going in the market by ourselves, we're doing the wine, we sell it, we taste it, so we, we part all the procedure. And so we, we felt, especially selling the wine abroad, that it's already confusing in the consumer to know the difference between Chianti and Chianti Classico. Sometimes even the, the distributors, they call it Chianti. That is reductive and it's not the same. Because the Chianti zone is quite a bit bigger. Yeah, Chianti, Chianti is the area where the Chianti Classico is produced. And in the 30s, they enlarged the possibility to make Chianti wine even in, in Pisa or very far from Chianti just because it was a famous name. And so it improved the, the sales of the wines, but there's nothing to do with the, the area of the Chianti Classico, the, the hills between Siena and Florence. And so they are really vocated to wine production. And so adding another appellation to this, so Chianti, then you have to distinguish Chianti Classico, then you have the normal vintage, then you have the Riserva, and then you have the Gran Selezione. As a first impact is a confusion, more confusion. Then also we felt that if you take the best grapes to make the Gran Selezione, you take out some of the best grapes to the Riserva, and the Riserva takes out some of the best grapes to the Classico. So at the end of the game, you put something on top that push on the bottom the other varietals. So I really 
still cannot understand why they did it. Maybe as a marketing idea to revive something or to try to make some of the producer in the Chianti area, they are producing IGT, 100% Sangiovese, that they marketing not as a Chianti Classico, but as IGT by their name, I don't know, Pergole Torte, Fontalloro, these kind of wines, to try to convince them to come back in the appellation. But of course, they will never do that because they achieve the, the, the knowledge on the market with their names, why they, they want to be bothered to come back in the Chianti Classico that also push you in a certain price level. So I don't think it really worked. Going forward, you have a new analogist. You have a bit older vines. Yes. More a sense of which clones are in which spot. What do you see evolving with Jeggiano in the future? But let's say that to me, that in this uh, era of uh, intangible things, no, everything is virtual, uh, internet, uh, the finance that is absolutely based on nothing, on debts, interest on debts, on the debts, on the debts. So there's nothing really uh, tangible. Making wine, having something that comes from the soil, from the land, and you can really do by yourself, it's really something special. <laughs> it's not just uh, a business that we're doing. No, but we feel really more uh, complete as a human being, having this kind of direct relationship with, with the soul, with Mother Earth. I'm not a kind of an old hippie. <laughs> I'm very rational. But this feeling is still very, very, very nice. I, I like it very much. And so having the, the opportunity to communicate to the people that are, will drink the wine, maybe they will find the bottle somewhere, what we're doing, how we're doing, the fact that it's really grape juice fermented and put into the bottle in the most natural way, I think it, it will be part of our efforts for the future. And something you did a little bit ago was you paired with a, a restaurant in London. Yes, that was uh, due to different factors because, first of all, need of money, <laughs> sincerely speaking. And getting older, you know, you start thinking about your pension plan, and this could be a good thing. Then also me and my brother also with two foodies, as you say, in the States, we like cooking, we like food, we like natural ingredients, and we have still, we have the fortune to be in an area where you can source really good stuff from the producer, small producer, meat, vegetables, oil, all these kind of things. So, And also the fact that I was going in London since a long time for the wine business, and I always found that the Italian restaurant that I was visiting for the wine business, because when I'm traveling usually I'm not going to eat pasta around the world, but for the business I had to visit these restaurants, I found them that there were two categories more or less. One old-fashioned with the garlic and the hanging on the, and the salami, you know, these kind of things. And the other version was a little bit of the fusion cuisine, with maybe Tuscan ingredients, Italian ingredients, but funky recipes or something. And I, I thought that was really missing something real. And then with the help of two friends, uh, two very good friends that I met by chance, that start coming to the villa, they fell in love with the place, they start helping me in promoting the villa, etc. 
we decided to make this adventure. And so since last November, we opened this restaurant that is a sort of embassy of uh, Villa di Giugiano in London. So we sell the wine. We have a part of the, um, of the restaurant that is also an estate shop where we sell the wine and the olive oil. And uh, we, we sell a lot of the wine in the restaurant. And we also importing from around the villa, the cured meats, the cheese, the marmalade, um, honey, all these kind of products that are unknown on the market in like London because they are really real stuff that is coming over there. And so we're having a good success. Also, the, the, the kitchen is based on very simple recipes, not too many items on the menu, very well done, very carefully manicured. And, and so it's, uh, it's doing well. And it's also a fun things to be done <laughs> do people ever get confused like go to the winery and say like i thought you were a restaurant stuff like that <laughs> yes now we, we are risking it's the same name right a little bit like this as um the perfect example is a visitor that was supposed to come uh, kind of three weeks ago and he was in siena and he googled villa di Giugiano on his uh, smartphone and, and the result was it was two thousand miles north of where he's supposed to. and so we now have to adjust this this fact a little bit he like calls you and he's like, I might be a little late. Yeah, you know? exactly. <laughs> <laughs> exactly so. Andrea Bianchi Bandinelli, it's been a long history and seems quite exciting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're having fun. We have a great passion. And that is the first reason why we're doing this, because if we wanted to make money, we probably would have been working in finance <laughs> because there's not much money around, but it's uh, it's better than working. <laughs> Andrea Bianchi Bandinelli of Villa da Gegiano. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.